0: All right, we can, we, there's a lot of things we need to do, but we're going to continue our study on long gospel. We need to uh, get to a and finish our study on that, but we can only do one thing at a time, unfortunately. I mean, I guess I could try to do two things at once, but don't know how well that would go. All right, everybody remember which thesis we're on? We're on thesis number 11. This is like part 58. If you look at the uh, the numbering for the ones that we've done here, this is like part 77. If you look at all the total that we've done from here and then the podcast. So a lot of content, not going to review everything. Um, we're just going to jump right back into thesis 11. We'll, I'll remind you of what the thesis says um, we covered, then we made about two two to three paragraphs into it. So I'm going to read probably the first two or three paragraphs relatively quick, and then we're going to just pick up where it is. Now, obviously, you've probably already noticed that in certain ways, you may feel like these theses are repetitive, but I think they're repetitive for one reason. They're repetitive because the concept of a proper distinction between law and gospel is so missing from, I mean, it's it's been missing throughout much of, especially the Protestant world. I mean, uh, obviously the Catholic world completely obliterates the distinction between law and gospel. And then th- all the things that came out of the Reformation... Obviously, Luther was one who very much wanted a a proper distinction between law and gospel, but even he struggled with it. Lutheran theology is the one that still maintains fighting for that distinction and a conservative Lutheran church, but everyone else has just uh, literally abandoned it at every turn. And it's so hard for people to see because... People will think, "Oh no, this is law, this is gospel, but let let them just let them start talking about justification, sanctification, and almost without fail, you will hear that they don 't quite understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. They will merge, they will confuse, and when you try to point it out, they will almost view you as if like they don't even know what you 're talking about it 's like you 're talking a different language right you 're like No, 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 no. A proper distinction between law and gospel. And they're like, they'll just be like, no, you're, they'll they'll be using different categories to to classify you. And it's like, no, that's not the category I'm in. I'm in the category of a historical proper distinction between law and gospel. Because when you obliterate that, you basically return to Rome. It's that simple. Now, you may not want to refer to yourself as Roman Catholic, but you're Roman Catholic and 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 the, and i guess what probably that's one of the most frustrating things especially from the if you look at the non-catholic world typically when they speak about catholicism the issues they're so upset about are not really the issues that they should be upset about they should be more upset about the fact of the idea of an infused righteousness for justifi- justification and a, an obliteration of law and gospel but the the non-catholic world is like well i don't want a pope okay well that's the, the, that that's not the issue because you think you're your own pope. So you already have a pope. So that's irrelevant. Okay, I don't like the uh, church authority. Yeah, because you want to be the authority. Well, I don't like what they believe about Mary or I don't like uh, purgatory. Like they pick these almost in some cases, I believe, secondary issues to make them the primary issue while missing what the primary issue really is. And that is a proper understanding of justification by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness and not creating a catholic light system where we basically bring works right back into it because that's what happens over and over and over. So obviously when you're dealing with this, there's going to be a repetitive nature to it, but the repetitive nature is because we have to do everything we can to get a proper understanding of it. Does that make sense? All right, so what was Thesis 11, if anybody wants to read it? right, yeah, the word of God is not rightly divided. And this is, remember how this is written in the book. When there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contract by the law, not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from love of God. Now this gets into, basically, they really start trying to break it down on when is law necessary? When is gospel necessary? When is it the right time? When is it the wrong time? But I want to make it very clear, and this, we have to understand this, that law is needed by whom? <clears throat> everyone, and gospel is needed by everyone. However, there are specific times in the life of everyone that law is what needs to be emphasized, and sometimes it's gospel needs to be emphasized. And law needs to be emphasized in what situations? If someone is comfortable in their sin, they're just, they, they don't feel guilty, they don't feel anything, they don't sorrow, they're not broken. They, need, they don't need gospel. They need law, 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 because law is supposed to do what? Convict and reveal and break and bring them to the gospel. All right? They, that's, that's what it, it needs to do. And when does someone need the gospel? When they're already broken and already convicted. They don't need to to hear the law at that point. They need the gospel. But everyone, I want to make it very clear, Christians need the gospel just as much as a lost person because Christians sin all the time. And at the same time, we need law to constantly remind us that we do sin all the time. So we'll have a greater appreciation for the gospel. And then lost people clearly need the law, but sometimes you can find a lost person who is already so convicted and so broken that they just need the gospel. You just have to have the wisdom to know which is which and when each is needed. All right, so remember how this, this section started. It says, since the, the fall, since the fall, the law has but one single function to lead men to the knowledge of their sins. It has no power to renew them. Remember, we really spent a lot of time on this. Law cannot renew. Law has no power other than to condemn. And so much of the evangelical world, their solution for every problem is what? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, which is all what? Law, 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 law. Just, just go to any Christian bookstore. Just look anywhere. Just look on, online at the Christian books. And it's all, how to do this, do this, do this, do this. Five ways to be a better wife. Ten ways to be a better husband. Fifteen ways to be a better church member. Thirty-seven ways to be a better pastor. Like, do this, do this, do this. Do this. Here's your disciplines. You need to do this, do this. You need, to, you need to join a small group. You need to do this. You need to read more. You need to pray more. You need, and it's 9,000 things we need to do. And all and anytime you're telling someone to do something, what are you giving them? Law. For some weird reason, we think law possesses some power to ultimately renew or change, but what does it only do? You, it's just gonna put you in a position of never-ending what? Failure. You're never going to live up to it, especially God's law. We and I know that the evangelical world rejects this outright but I can prove it a million different ways. The evangelical world, at at large, believes what when it comes to the law and the Christian? What is the basic teaching in the evangelical world when it comes to the law and the Christian? We've talked about this now 5,000 times in this study. We can do it. All right, I want to make sure everyone knows that the evangelical world at large says we can keep the law. And not only can we, someone said it, it proves whether we're saved or not saved, meaning that the proof of my salvation is not the finished work of Christ, but what I do or don't do. Which then creates a major problem because can we keep the law? All right, we cannot keep... I want to... We've got to have this down, okay? This has to be the most emphatic answer ever. Can we keep the law? No, it has to be emphatic. And I can give you three scriptures to prove it. You already know which ones I'm going to go with, right? I've only said it a million times. What's the first one? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Give me a Christian who's ever accomplished that for any length of time. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Number three, Be holy as God is holy. If you think you can be holy as God is holy, then you're out of your absolute mind. Because that would require what? Perfection. (laughs) And what? Thought, word, deed, desire. What you do externally and what you do internally. We're in a perpetual state of sin. We're in a perpetual state of sin. You say, well, I'm not committing that sin. Well, congratulations. In some cases, even though you're not committing the outward act, you're committing it inward, so you're just as guilty. That that was the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is to lead people to what? Despair. But the Sermon on the Mount is preached how in the evangelical church? Do this, do this, do this. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? perfect and if you read a sermon and jesus says be perfect that's a pretty good sign we need a different hermeneutic agreed but the way i mean just go listen i can go online and listen to all the sermons on on the sermon on the mount and i'm telling you that they're all preached the exact same way and it's it's horrible so that we it does not have the power to renew let's make that very clear does not have the power to renew okay um, now, it says, uh, only faith works by love, which is an interesting concept. We do not become spiritually, uh, we do not become spiritually acted by love, uh, by sorrow over sins. On the contrary, while still ignorant of the fact that God has become our reconciled God and Father through Christ, we hate him. Now, there's a little bit of truth to that, is there not? Right there's a part of us that that no matter how much we want to pretend that we love him, like on one hand we would like to say what should motivate my faith should be love, but the reality there's always a part of us that deep down we would never say it, we won't say it with our mouth. Luther was willing to say it. Remember the famous quote by Luther: "Love God. Sometimes I hate him." Right? And now we couldn't, you can't say that in church because everybody'd be like, "Oh." But deep down, there is a hatred, and how does that hatred is how does it how is it manifested? Because we don't want to do what he tells us to do. Agreed. All right. Okay. Now it says an unconverted person who claims that he loves God is stating an untruth and is guilty of a miserable piece of hypocrisy, though he may not be conscious of it. He sets up a a claim, you know, basically a a claim that's not true because only faith in the gospel regenerates a person. That's true. Accordingly, a person cannot love God while he is still without faith. We, We can agree with that. To demand of a poor sinner that he must, from love of God, be alarmed on account of his sins and feel sorry for them is a perversion of law and gospel. So what they're saying here is you can't make a lost person do what? Love God. You can't make a lost person love God. You can't. You can't. And if you if you if you if you were a Christian parent and tried to raise children, what can you not make them do? Love God. Oh, they when they're little, they'll say it, right? Because that's what they're supposed to say it. Oh, I love Jesus. And Jesus loves, they know to say those words, but you cannot form love. And a pastor cannot make the congregation love God. The congregation can't make the pastor love God. Nobody can make anyone love God. That's just, it's impossible. And you definitely cannot make an unregenerate person love God, right? And if you can't make an unregenerate person love God, it's bizarre that what the church still wants to do is impose law on those who hate God. Do you understand the conflict? If if someone hates God, you can give them all the law in the world, but if they hate the lawgiver... It's never going to accomplish anything, right? So in, lo- in many cases, Christians think the solution to everything is law. And in many cases, we try to impose the law on people who don't really love God. But let's be honest, even as believers, there's a part of us that still... There's a part of us that still hates God to some degree. We, we, because we want to be What? And charge. We want, are, uh, we want to, be, uh, to rule. So on one hand, love is what should motivate, but everyone in some ways is missing that love. We, we will never love God the way we're supposed to and because we never love God the way we're supposed to, then we're always going to be in a perpetual state of difficulty and struggle. I, I mean, I wish we could all just say, oh, we love God and it would be that simple, but it's not. But it definitely is not going to be true in, in the heart of an unregenerate person. All right, here is the biblical doctrine, and we talked about this last week. The sinner is to come to Jesus just as he is, even when, even when he has to acknowledge that there is nothing but hatred for God in his heart, and he knows of no refuge to which he may flee for salvation. In other words, when the, the argument here is the way some evangelicals would preach is, hey, you come to God. But before you come to God, you better love him. And before you come to God, you better hate your sin. And before you come to God, and almost teaching, again, repentance is this, you've got to change everything before you come to God. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because even after you come to God, guess what's still going to remain? All of that sin and all of those problems. So it's saying that we come to God acknowledging all of this, right? We do acknowledge it. What's the one thing should change? our minds, which is repentance, that's what repentance really is, we should change our mind about our sin, that we believe it's sin, we know God is upset with it, but the reality is we still have to acknowledge the reality of what's in us. And I've said Christianity becomes a a performance art, where we all pretend to be something, that we're not, and no one can really be open and honest. You can't be really open and honest about the the reality because the church wants you to put on a a mask and pretend to be something you're not instead of being able to be genuine about like, man, I got this problem, I got this problem, I got this problem, I got this problem, this problem. And, And everyone should be like, well, join the club because we all have our own problems. Because we do right? We're all a bunch of sinners. But so he's saying the biblical doctrine is we have to come with this genuine honesty, right? A genuine preacher of the gospel will show such a person how easy his salvation is. Knowing himself a lost and condemned sinner and unable to find the help that he is seeking, he must come to Jesus with his evil heart and his hatred of God and and God's law. And Jesus will receive him as he is. Now, many Christians cannot stand to hear that he would receive him as he is. Because pe- most Christians would teach, he won't receive you as you are, you have to come changed. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can try to pretend that it does. And if, you really, if we really believe that's the way it worked, then you would say, okay, look, you want Jesus, you need to change these 15 things. But everyone would say, well, no, that's not what we're saying. Those, what they were saying is, you must be willing to change those things before you come, but I don't really know what that proves because anybody can say they're willing to do something. Right? We can all say, I'm willing to do it. So then how we play it in the evangelical world, you must be willing to do something. Now, after you're saved, it, you've got a limited amount of time to demonstrate that you've stopped doing it because if you haven't stopped doing it, then you are never saved. Which then, once again, creates what as your basis of your salvation? What you're doing. See, it's, 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 it's such a convoluted mess. And, and look, let's make it very clear. If this was simple, if this was simple, there would not be all the problems we've seen for 2,000 years in church history. No one has got it. Cl- cl- Roman Catholics have their way of trying to figure it out, which dominated the church. Luther tried his way of figuring it out. And then from Luther on, there's, ne- there's, I mean, just think of all the different systems there are out there, right? You've got the idea that you can lose your salvation. You've got the idea that, well, you can't lose your salvation, but you can prove that you never had your salvation. And you may find out that you never had your salvation 15 years after supposedly being saved. <laughs> okay, which, So then how can you ever have assurance? It's just... And then you've got all these different ways of trying to approach it. If it was simple, there would be how many ways of looking at it? Probably one, maybe two at best. But nobody seems to have it figured out. So, so we have to embrace the fact that it's difficult. Because Christians get nervous. If I, if I was to look at anybody who's a sinner, a, a horrible sinner and say, well, just come to Jesus as you are, there would be someone who'd step up and go, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got to make sure you tell them they can't. Stay like they are. Because if they stay like they are, then they were never saved. But then you have to say, well, what do you mean by not like I was? Because what is the one thing true of all of us after we're saved? We still have a sinful nature, unless you believe in it. And now there are those who teach in the eradication of the old nature, but if you teach the eradication of the old nature, what should flow from it? Sinless perfection. So it leads to lots of serious problems trying to figure this out and trying to understand it. And the minute you start talking about it, people get defensive and get nervous. But we, we come as we are. It is his glory that men say of him, Jesus receives sinners. He is not to become a different being. He is not to become purified. He is not to amend his conduct before coming to Jesus. We are just to come as We are, as a sinner. What what do we have to, when we come to Jesus, we come just simply acknowledging what we are and that he isn't like we are and it's because of what he did and who he is that I am saved. That's the way it has to be. Now, that makes people nervous. Makes people nervous. I know why it makes them nervous. But everything else you have to then pretend. Agreed? All right, Um, Romans 3.20, we talked about this last week. Does everybody remember Romans 3.20? You can look at it really quick if you need to. Romans 3.20. Okay, what does it say? All right, so what what do you you think they want to emphasize here? Why do you think they're using Romans 3.20? Because by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. In other words, you're never going to be justified before God based off what you do. So therefore you can't make what you do the basis of determining if one is justified. This is the way they, they describe it. The law produces not love but the knowledge of sin. A person can indeed possess that knowledge without love of God. Someone can have the knowledge, but not love, God, because law does not produce love. Law does not produce love. Law does not produce love. That if you get anything down from this morning, you may want to write this down. Law does not produce love. Now, does that mean the law? We, we we don't care about the law. No, it doesn't mean it means the law is still there, right? It, the law. Let's so make make sure we understand this. Is God's law holy? Is God's law good? Is God's law beneficial? Yes, is God's law necessary? Yes. But we have to understand what it can and cannot do, and it cannot produce love. It cannot produce love. And you can so that means you can give people a thousand rules. But that's not going to make them love God. In fact, what will all the rules do? I want to make sure we understand. All the rules will simply lead you to a, a never-ending realization that you fall short of that. Or what, what, what's another dangerous part that law will do? There's one other thing law will do. Not only will it lead you to despair, it will not produce love. It will lead you to despair. So you may want to write this down. Law will not produce love. It can lead to despair. And why does it lead to Despair. because you're just never going to accomplish it, right? You're going to fall short, you're going to fall short. That should lead to despair. It's the weird thing that some people don't feel that despair. Remember, that was the whole... Like, nobody could understand Luther, right? When everyone reads Luther, doesn't everyone think, looking back into church history, doesn't a lot of people look at Luther like he was crazy? Always repenting, always repenting, always repenting, always... And everybody's like, watch your deal, get over it. But he's like, if the law... Demands perfection, I'm never gonna be perfect. So he was bothered. But you can you can you can preach a sermon. You can literally stand in a pulpit in almost any church in America and say, Be ye holy as God is holy. And everybody would be like, Amen, I can do it. Instead of everyone in the congregation should be like, What everyone should raise their hand and do what? We can't do that. But nobody will say that, right? It should lead to despair. The fact that it doesn't lead to despair is mind-blowing to me. All I've got to read is, be holy as God is holy. That is, that is stated in the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament. Jesus says the similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Right there, I'm done. I'm just like, that, that's it. Well, then here's my Bible. I'll turn in my Christian card and I'm just leaving because I can't do it. But the average Christian is like, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And I'm like, I don't get it. So, it should lead to despair. But if it doesn't lead to despair, what does it lead to? Want to make sure you have this down. It doesn't produce love. It will lead to despair. And the third one, you've got everyone's got to get the third one down. What do you think it leads to? Oh, come on. It's inevitable. Okay, well, it will increase more sin. For the Christian. Self-righteousness. There we go. We will start cleaning up what? The outside of the cup. We'll convince, we'll clean up the outside of the, of the, of the bottle, right? We'll make it really nice. We'll put a good label on it that says Christian, Right? alright I'm, I'm mature. I'm growing. We'll make it look all nice and neat. We'll dress up for church. We'll smile in the small group. We'll tell everyone how great we're doing. People say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great because God is good and God is good all the time. And everything's wonderful, right? We say all of our little cliches. Maybe we'll get a Christian bumper sticker. Everything will be great. Everything looks wonderful and nice. Oh, and then not only that, what else do we do? Oh, we become self-righteous condemning everyone else's sin, right? Why do we condemn everyone else's sin? Because it makes us feel, much better, right? Hey, 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 I haven't been to Vegas sleeping with any prostitutes. I'm doing pretty good, right? Okay, so so then we become self-righteous and condemning. That's what law is going to lead to. Law is not going to produce love. Law will do what? Lead to despair if, it, if, if we truly understand it. Or it will lead us to dress up the outside. And that's what the Pharisees did. Were they self-righteous? Did they condemn anyone and everyone for the slightest little supposed deviation of anything? Yes. At the same time, how clean were they really? Because, I don't know, they were only plotting to kill, I don't know, the eternal son of God. <laughs> okay, that's pretty messed up, right? Hey, 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 we may not go into Samaria and talk to those Samaritans, but we'll kill Jesus. Jesus. Hey, we may not. We may not. We don't. Hey, we wash our hands before we eat. Hey, we we do all the right things. Oh, but we'll kill an innocent person. Well, the church has demonstrated that for two thousand years. We 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 clean ourselves up. We condemn everything the world does. We'll condemn everything that happens on the Grammys, at the Oscars. We'll condemn Hollywood. We'll condemn Netflix. We'll condemn books. We'll condemn this. We'll condemn that. And then all you got to do. It's just go to any website that really reports on what's happening in churches, and it's a horrific mess week after week after week after week from everything from sexual abuse, children being molested. You just name it. Horrible things happening in churches all across the United States on a regular basis. Just read the Roy's report on a regular basis. She reports the most horrific things happening in churches, and you just look at it, you're like... Maybe we should shut up because we're not so good. Now, as soon as, but as soon as I mention those horrible things, what's the go to get out of jail free card that Christians play? They weren't really saved. As soon as someone does something bad in Christianity, we we immediately disown them. If someone does something bad in another religion, if a Catholic does something wrong, we immediately blame Catholicism. (laughs) But if someone in Christianity does something wrong, we immediately say, oh, they weren't a Christian. They weren't a Christian. They weren't a Christian. They weren't a Christian. Because a Christian would never do it. I mean, a a believer in God would never commit adultery and kill the husband. Never. A a, a Christian would never have 700 wives and 300 concubines. That could never happen. A, A Christian, a believer in God would never, I don't know forcibly have relations with their handmaid that they would gotten in Egypt, a slave. Oh, that would never... Ha- I can go on and on and on throughout the Bible, all the things believers in God did. Pretty, some pretty messed up stuff, yes? You ever read the book of Judges? And some of those people who did those horrible things are mentioned where? In Hebrews 11. Heroes of the faith who weren't so heroic. Because they were still what? Sinners. And that that's what we have to understand. We can't allow law to make us dress up. We can't. Law, law is to show us how guilty we are. Go to Romans 5.20, we looked at this last week. I know we I added a little bit there to the Romans 3.20 discussion that we didn't talk about last week. Romans 5.20. What does this say? Yeah, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Right? Other translations say what? In Romans 5.20, how does it read? <laughs> yeah, the law increases sin. and law increases sin. One, it increases sin in what way? Well, one, you, you didn't know it, But we've talked about it before. Law provokes. Law provokes sin. It almost sets it into motion. It's the the whole idea that you could could have something sitting here and nobody would touch it until you put a sign that says, don't touch. And almost inevitably, something inside rises up and wants to do what? Right? I mean, you know, if you've ever dealt with children, You'll be like, don't touch that, don't, like, and they're not even paying attention. As soon as you say don't touch it, they're kind of like. And you're like, you out of control sinner? But what does it prove? Law does what? Provoke. Why does law Provoke. Because our nature does not like law. Right? Agreed? If there wasn't a law against seatbelts, I probably wouldn't mind wearing one. But you tell me I, what I can and can't do in my car, then I'm like, give me a break. I'm gonna, I'll watch this. I'm not wearing it. Right? Oh, come on. There's other. You know you're the same way. Right? Okay, all right. Maybe not. Do, do I? It's, it's, it's just me. Whatever the other issues may be, you've got your own, right? You may there may there may be plenty of things you have no problem doing until your husband tells you to do it, and then you're like, "Well, I'm not doing that." Yes. Okay, right? Okay. Uh, Romans 5.20, as we just said, many sins are slumbering in a person who is still ignorant of the law. Let the law be preached to such a person forcefully. Let it strike his conscience with lightning force and the person will not become better but will literally become worse. That is so against our way of thinking. The law will make someone worse. But what do Christians want to do to solve all the problems in the culture? Give them law. It, it's completely theologically wrong. There's, there's entire theologies within the Christian world who says, no, 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 we need to enforce the law on the unregenerate. How well did that ever work in the Bible? God gave the law to Israel. How did that work, everyone? As soon as they would get a law, they're like, oh, check, okay, give me. That. Immediately they said what? We'll do it. There's that self-righteousness, right? And then immediately set off to do what? I think, I, think the, I think Israel woke up every day going, okay, guys, okay, we got some laws to break today, so how are we going to do it, right? Like, they, I think they had a meeting every morning on how to break the law. I mean, they did pretty good at doing it, did they not? I mean, every time they turned around, they were doing it. Sometimes you probably feel like your kids used to do that, Right? They used to wake up going, what can we do wrong today? And you're like, and you think you can just reason with them. Like, there's no reason to do it, right? Well, as long as you tell me I can't, there's a reason. Now, so what you need to do is tell them to do all the things that you don't want. And they're like, well, I'm not, okay, right? Don't go to church. I'm going to church. You can't own a Bible. I'm going to get two of them. Okay, right? That's that's how it probably should have worked. But yeah, it's a little late now, right? Okay. All right, he, immediately he will begin to rear up against God and say, what, am I to be damned? True, I know that I'm an enemy of God, but that is not my fault. I cannot help it. This is the effect of the preaching of the law. In other words, immediately they're going to make excuses. They're going to make arguments. They're just going to, it's not going to, it's not going to work. It drives men to desperation. Oh, do you hear that? It drives men to desperation. Did I not give you that just a little while ago? Blessed the person who has been brought to this point. Now, if you can get to desperation, that's the best place you can end up. If law will make you desperate, you're good. If it leads to self-righteousness, you're in bad shape. If it leads, Why is it good if it leads to desperation? Because you're going to flee to the gospel. You're going to flee to Christ. You're going to flee to Christ. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Um, it says the Bible texts are illustrated by examples recorded in Scripture, which exactly relate to the conduct of certain persons before their conversion and after they had become believers. Um, on the first Christian festival of Pentecost, a multitude of people had gathered and heard the apostle Peter preach. The gist of his remarks was that they were murderer they, they, that they were the murderers of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and must tremble when thinking of judgment. They had listened to Peter's whole address, but when he reached the point where he raised his charge against them, they became alarmed by the Holy Spirit. The record says they were cut to the heart. They reasoned, if we, if we have done that, we are all doomed men. We are not told that they said, oh, we feel so sorry for having grieved our faithful God. It was not love of God, but fright and terror that made them cry. What shall we do? Nor does the Apostle Peter say to them, My dear people, we shall now have to investigate the quality of your contrition, whether it flows from the love of God or from the fear of punishment due to your sins or your fear from hell. The Apostle simply says, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We are told that they received baptism immediately. They changed their mind. Uh, they, the cha- their change of mind consisted in this. They no longer desired to be murderers of Jesus, but wished to believe in him. Accordingly, the apostle receives them, and they were numbered with the congregation of those who were saved. And that's all in Acts chapter 2. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, they realized they felt conviction, and Peter's didn't like, well, we need to investigate to see how sorry you really are. Hey, 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 guys, we need you to do these 17 different things. He just said, repent and believe, change their mind, believe. And then they were received, and they were baptized. But they, they, they were received and counted among among them. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, many Christians would disagree and say, "No, no, no, no. We got to check this. We got to check this. We gotta we gotta verify this, and we gotta verify that." But uh, what are you gonna verify? Every, every one of those three thousand that believed on that day were still what after they believed? They were still sinners. And did they continue to sin after they believed? Yes, they did. Uh, The example of the jailer of Philippi also illustrates the point. When he imagined that all the prisoners had escaped during the earthquake, he was seized with despair and wanted to commit suicide. Paul cried to him, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And now the jailer, trembling at the apostles' feet, and asked men, What must I do to be saved? Nothing but his fright and terror moved him to do that. Now Paul does not say to him, First, you must become contrite from love of God, but believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. In other words, he didn't start challenging or questioning or trying to verify. He just simply said, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. Saul was put through the same experience when the gospel with its power had entered into his heart and his wretched man was plucked out of his distress and misery. And now the Lord prescribed for, his, for this sinner who has been terrified and crushed and then comforted, no other lesson than this, that instead of persecuting him, he was to confess him after he had received baptism as a seal of forgiveness of his sins. When you preach, do not be stingy with the gospel. Bring its consolations to all, even to the greatest sinners. When they are terrified by the wrath of God in hell, they are fully prepared to receive the gospel true, this goes against our reason. We think it is strange that such uh, knaves are to be comforted immediately. We imagine they ought to be made to suffer great agony in their conscience. It's like, we have a tendency to think, oh, are you sure you really feel bad? Are you sure you're really sorry? It's like, no, we immediately give them the gospel and don't be stingy with it. Bring them the comfort. Bring them the comfort. All right, now, go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. We're gonna we're gonna finish this one way or the other. I don't care what I have to do, All right. I have a feeling though I'm gonna say that and we're gonna get stuck right here. But okay, Second Corinthians seven ten. All right, and what do we read there? All right, so this is godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow, right? And a godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. They state it this way. Godly sorrow is supposed to mean sorrow of contrition from love of God. This is a mistake, they say. So listen here. They say godly sorrow is supposed to mean sorrow of contrition from love of God, and this is a mistake. The apostle refers to sorrow which man has not produced himself, but which God has caused in him by his word. It is another grievous perversion of the Christian doctrine to tell an alarm sinner that he must first experience contrition when he asks how he must go about that. To tell him that he must sit down, meditate, and try to draw a, or elicit repentance from his heart, there, there is not in all the world, a person who can produce contrition in himself. In other words, what he's saying is we can't, you can't make a person produce this contrition, and you don't manipulate this contrition. Right? You don't do that. That this contrition has to be brought about by whom? God. Now, this kind of goes. This is definitely much more in the Reformed world where we, we sit theologically because we. Well, what do we believe? Is who is who produces repentance? God. Not us. Now, we can manipulate repentance, but manipulating repentance is of no value. Okay, Faith. Does faith come from us or from God? God. God has to grant the repentance. God has to grant the faith. Now, I understand in most of the evangelical world who is semi-Pelagian, they believe repentance and faith is produced by whom? Us. We believe it cannot be produced by us. If it's genuine. A human sorrow can be produced. A human repentance can be produced and maybe even a human kind of faith will be produced, but it will not be a godly faith, a godly repentance or a godly sorrow. And he's saying that you can't try to get people to elicit it. You proclaim the truth of God's word and let who produce it? God. We don't manipulate it. So much of uh, the evangelical world does a lot of things to, uh, to elicit a response through human manipulation, either through... Try to play on emotions or try to create a scenario where you get those feelings going and you can get you can elicit a response. The only problem is it will be what kind of a response? A human response and that will not produce anything of great spiritual value. Does that make sense? All right. So I, I think it's important that they they, they, they drive that point home. There is not in all the world a person who can produce contrition in himself. Godly sorrow is, require, is required because faith is required. God, by terrifying us, wants to, wants to produce this sorrow. We must not imagine that contrition is a good work, which we do, but it is something that God works in us. And that's very important. We can't, if we think that our contrition or our sorrow, if it's our repentance, if it's our faith and it's our sorrow, then it's our works. And then we are saved by works. But we are not saved by our works. We are saved, everything is a work of God. God has to produce that contrition. God has to produce that faith. God has to produce that repentance. And those things are produced through the proclaiming of God's word. So the preaching of God's word that those things are, come about. Does that make sense? All right. Hope so. All right. Um. God comes with the hammer of the law and smites our soul. A person who wants to make himself sorrowful desires ever to increase his sorrow over sin. But a person merged in the right kind of sorrow yearns to be rid of it. I think that's interesting, right? In other words, you could have kind of a psychological thing where you almost desire sorrow because you want to feel bad, right? You kind of want to feel bad, so you kind of just create more sorrow, almost kind of a self-pity, because you kind of want to punish yourself, but godly sorrow will make you want to be rid of it. You'll want to flee to Christ. Human sorrow, you'll want to stay in it. Have you ever, and we can all probably have experienced, have you ever felt bad, and you just want to feel bad, (laughs) and you don't want anyone to bring any comfort to you, because you're like, I deserve to feel bad, and you just kind of get into this like, self-loathing, and it's almost like a psychological thing, right? And you're like, I want to feel bad because I hate myself. I hate what I've done. And you just live in this pit of self-despair and you can never get yourself out of it. Godly sorrow will make you want to do what? Be rid of it. It will drive you to flee from it. So human sorrow sometimes just becomes, you're, you're almost punishing yourself. And then you'll want to stay there because you want to continue to punish yourself. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, you'll want to do what? You'll want to flee to Christ. So that's a very interesting description there. We probably could spend some more time. But all right, here we go. It says, the the Lutheran confessions, obviously this comes from a Lutheran perspective, offers to poor sinners the sweet comfort. That when God has given them the grace to be alarmed on account of their sins, they are in a fit condition to approach the throne of grace where they receive forgiveness, the true remedy for all of their ills. They must indeed have contrition, however, not to the end of acquiring some merit by it, but that they may gladly accept what Jesus offers to them. We don't gain merit because how bad we feel. We don't gain any merit. The only merit is found in Christ and what he did. It's not, we don't, we can't take some pride that we feel worse than others. Feeling bad, the only, the only merit is found where? In Christ. That, that's it. All, all of this is to drive us to Christ. And now here, the last paragraph. When I am terrified by the thoughts of my sins, hell, death, and damnation, and I, and perceive that God is angry with me, and that being under his wrath, I am damned on account of my sins, that is godly sorrow. Even though I may be in the same condition, and which Luther was before he got the right knowledge of the gospel. Such sorrow comes from God. On the other hand, when a fornicator, a drunkard, begins to sorrow because he has wasted the beautiful time of his youth, has ruined his body and has become basically prematurely senile, that is a sorrow of this world. In other words, if you feel bad, because look up, look, my sins hurt this person, my sins, I did this, and I hurt myself. That is kind of just an earthly sorrow. But when you realize I have sinned against God, now it doesn't mean you ignore your other consequences. You do realize you've done other things, but you realize ultimately that you forgot. It's kind of the, like Psalm 51 is a good example, right? Everyone look at Psalm 51 really quick. We know David wrote this after. Some serious sins, right? He decided one night he was going to break every commandment he could find. Right? I mean, he did. He broke them all, did he not? I mean, he coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He committed co- deceit. He, I mean, he just, went, he just went all in, right? And then when he starts confessing his sin, note the language he uses. Just look carefully at the language. What does he say? Have mercy. Mercy. Keep going. Does it when he talks about his sin? Okay, I have sinned against thee, and thee only have I sinned. Wait a minute. Didn't David commit sin against a lot of people? What's the point here? Is that this is a godly sorrow because he realizes ultimately, it, it's not a denial of responsibility of the other. It's just showing that his his sorrow is because he has sinned against God not just because of all the horrible things that he has done. Now, let's make sure we got to be careful here. Okay, let's all, we always have to be careful here because people have, we all have a tendency to do this. As soon as someone shows sorrow because of their sin, what's the go-to excuse in the Christian world? Well, they only show sorrow because they got caught. Okay, Be very careful with doing that, right? Because if being caught brings the right kind of sorrow... Who cares that they're feeling sorrow sorrow because they got caught? Be glad that they got caught because then it leads to sorrow. And if it leads to the right kind of sorrow, then that's a good thing. Yes? Okay, right? Yes? I mean, that, that, that has to be seen as a good thing. But where we immediately will almost dismiss it. So, we just got to be careful that we don't become the sorrow detectors that we can go around and determine whose sorrow is legitimate or whose sorrow is not legitimate because typically we will never know. And just, and please note, you say, well, if they're truly sorrow, sorrowful, that will never commit that sin again. That is the most ridiculous thing to ever say because then, then anytime you've ever, at some point, that we should all stop sinning, right? Godly sorrow makes us run to Christ because Christ is the solution. Christ does not guarantee that we're never going to commit sin again. We run to Christ because we find forgiveness and restoration. It's not a guarantee that you're never going to sin again because at that point, every time you've committed a sin, then you should have stopped. You should commit a sin once after you're saved and then never commit it again. At some point, you would stop sinning. But it doesn't work that way. Yes? Yes? All right, so just make sure we understand that. All right, um, When a vain person is thrown into sorrow over his sins because he has lost somewhat of his prestige, when a thief sorrows over his thieving because it landed him in jail, that is worldly sorrow. However, when a person grieves over his sins because he sees hell before him, where he will be punished for having insulted the most holy God, that is a godly sorrow provided that he is that he has not been produced by imagination through a person's own effort. Genuine godly sorrow can be produced by God alone. God is the only one who can produce it. God is the only one who can produce it. And that ends that thesis. All right? So, how would we summarize this thesis? How do you think we should summarize this thesis? the emphasis on what the law cannot do and and what the law could possibly do wrong. So let's go through this. The law will not produce what? Love. It will lead to despair or it will lead to self-righteousness. All right? But we should, it should hopefully lead to a a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. God's law should lead to a godly sorrow. It should. Does it always lead to a godly sorrow? No. But what can we not do? We cannot manipulate and make someone feel these things. We can't. We can't. We can't. It just doesn't work that way. I, 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 wish, I wish there was... If there was a formula... Put, put it this way. People have been trying to come up with formulas for the entire history of Christendom and no formula works. You can, You can get a... You can get a temporary reaction and you can have a lot of things happen. But, it, it, I mean, the reality is we've got to have the right way of thinking or we just end up into a law-based mentality. And that law-based mentality will lead to self-righteousness and it can lead to total discouragement and despair. It, but it has to make us flee to Christ. That's our only hope. All right. That's the end of that one and we don't have time to look at the next one. We'll be, uh, the next one will be which number? 12, and this one is, the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher repre- represents contrition alongside of faith as the cause of the forgiveness of sins. That'll be interesting to see what they want to do with that one. All right, we've got, how many more do we have to go? We have a ways. okay. 23, 24, okay, yeah, no, no, not 50 something, okay, okay, 25, I think there's 25, I think there's 25, yeah, 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 there's 25, yeah, 25, all right, but we, we, but each time we we add a little bit more to our understanding, till we try to get this down, and then hopefully it, it changes the way you think. And hopefully it will change the way when you look at a scripture, you should become very good at determining when it's a law of scripture or when it's a gospel scripture. You've got to become good at that, right? As soon as you start reading scripture, even if you're reading it together, you need to be able to immediately go, is that law or that gospel? And if it's law, then there's an entire way of, there's a hermeneutic that you cannot apply to that. You've got to apply the right hermeneutic to a law verse versus a gospel verse. That law verse tells you what to do And if you are even halfway honest with yourself, you know you will never do it perfectly. Therefore, your only hope is Christ, which did every law mentioned in here. He he obeyed perfectly and in him, then that obedience is given to me. Or as the London Baptist Confession of Faith would say, his passive and active obedience is imputed to our account. Passive and active. Obedience, right? What he did on the cross, and then all of his keeping of the commandments. That's why when we got to be careful to say Jesus, when people say Jesus came to die, it always drives me crazy. Because he came to do what? Came to obey first, then die. Because if he if he didn't obey the law, then all he would do is be able to pay for my sins, but what I would still not be able to be pleasing to God. Right? I would have no holiness, my holiness comes from what His imputed his imputed righteousness. does that make sense? All right, good all right let 's pray, Lord God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for just a, a place where we can try to work through these very difficult theological concepts. I pray that we will continue to think about them, and it, they would have a profound impact on us every time we open our Bible or even talk about these kinds of things. we would have a proper understanding of law and gospel. So we have a proper understanding of our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.